This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones, host of the Transformative Principle podcast and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. That's not the real subtitle, by the way. I, I shortened it up so it makes a little more sense. And I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we're talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, the cannabis industry in this one, and cyber safety. Join us as we look for look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. <laughs> Hello, Jethro. <laughs> Hello, Fred. Good to see you again. Yes, likewise. It's been, what, half an hour? Wait, don't tell people our secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jethro, we are we are very fortunate in this particular episode because we are joined not only by an expert, but someone who happens to be a good friend and a lovely person. I would like to welcome Joan Irvine to the Cybertraps podcast. I thank you so much. So appreciate. <laughs> well, let me give a little bit of background, Joan, so that people have some understanding of why you're here. Joan Irvine has worked in technology, sales, and marketing for companies such as ADP, Automatic Data Processing, System Development Corporation, and Goal Systems. For the last 20 years, she has been a leader in online child protection technology. Joan is known for strategic thinking and implementing innovative and practical technical solutions. For example, she helped develop and deploy the Restricted to Adults RTA website label, which helped parents block age-restricted content. It was recognized by Google, Microsoft, and most parental control filtering systems and received the prestigious Association's Made a Better World Award. She was the executive director for IFOR that develops content policies for the internet that are designed to benefit global internet users and businesses regarding free expression, privacy, security, piracy, and child protection. So a huge overlap in the Venn diagram for what we talk about in this podcast. Currently, Joan is working to bring the same online youth safety technology and policies to the cannabis industry. And on a personal note, we met when I was researching my first book, Obscene Profits, which was about the entrepreneurs of pornography. So I would say, Jen, we're going on 25 years now. I think it's about, I started actually in that role in 2002. So it would have been almost 20 years ago. That's terrific. (laughs) So if you don't mind, why don't you give us a little bit of background about what you're working on and then we'll dive in. There's a number of things that I'm working on. And just to go back a little bit, what we had done and how I met Fred is I worked for an association where 
where we develop policies and self-regulation for the adult entertainment industry, an age-restricted industry. And what we found, it, we were actually asked by Microsoft to develop technology that the adult entertainment industry sites would use to help block children um, from accessing these sites. You know, people have this, are you 21 or not, or what's called a birth date verifier. I'll, people just, kids can just say, yeah, I'm 21. Yeah, I'm 21. Oh, here's my birthday. Come on, I used to lie about my age. And so we wanted to do something different, but also something that put the responsibility both on the industry and the parents. And we felt that that was very important because parents have to be involved in this. I mean, technology is now, 20 years ago it was, and even more so now, technology is out there and the parents need to know what's going on. And as you mentioned, we were able to, um, we received awards for what we were doing. All the major companies recognized it. So we were very happy and very, you know, just very pleased that we were able to do that. Fast forward to now, what we saw that the cannabis industry was going to have the same issues since it's an age-restricted industry. So how do you keep kids off of the websites? And how do you do real age verification, which hadn't it had it been done in the past, but not as extensively as it's being done now. So what we did about three years ago is take a look and started to investigate the cannabis industry and see what they needed. Once again, all that's required by regulation is, are you 21 or not? You'll see that every time before you even get to a site that will be there or an age verification. But we knew something more could be done with this because we had done it before. Uh, so we've been talking to people in the industry. It's been, it's been a very unique journey because one of the things I've found and it's going to be changing in the future is the cannabis industry, even though it's been around for ages in certain ways, it's really a new industry and it's going through so many changes. I mean, everything is by state rather than federal. Each state has kind of their own regulation. People went from being considered illicit to now being regulated. And they're having to get used to lots of regulations, lots of things they have to do. I mean, if you've gone from just having cultivating and your own cultivation and you did what you thought was necessary, and now all of a sudden the rules and the regulations have put a lot of people out of business. So it's an industry that's in real transition. Um, so there, we've not been able to get things done as quickly as we would like. But I've been told that especially once it hopefully this year or next, when it becomes federally legal, then it would give the industry kind of a co cohesive place to be able to work from. And that's what we had in the adult entertainment industry. We knew people throughout the country, it was a smaller industry, and then internationally, we knew them. So it was much easier to get that industry to adopt the restricted to adult website label than it is with the cannabis industry right now. So Joan, one thing that might be of interest to parents is a little bit of an explanation in terms of how the RTA label functioned. What, how did that make a difference in terms of, you know, the uh, going a little bit further than just click here that you're 18 or 21? Okay, what it was and had been started, you know, been used by you know, other industries for other reasons. But what we did is we created the, this metadata tag that websites would put on their site, people, companies would put on their sites. And if parents had implemented the parental control filtering systems that are already you know, on the computer, on the phone, on the iPads, if kids try to get to that site, it would block them. They would just get like a 404, well, not to get technical, but they'd get a 404. They couldn't get to the sites. So it was really very simple, but what was more, was a little bit harder, and I'm seeing that from the cannabis industry, is we had to get all the adult sites to adopt this. Then we had to get the Googles and the Microsofts and all the parental control filtering systems to recognize it. So it took, you know, the, our, that industry, it took the tech industry, and then it took parents. 
So parents, it really comes down to parents, if you're going to be giving your child a phone, an iPad, or this, which is just part of everyday life, you really need to set up those child safety systems that are on there. If I can ask then, do yeah. you need to get the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C.org, do they need to be involved in that also? We were able to do it on our own since we were a very, let's say, an industry that knew everybody. Uh, so we did our own. And plus, because it was funded by the adult entertainment industry, I hate to say a lot of times people didn't want to work with us or they had different restrictions. And we felt it was important that we did something that worked, that was self-regulation, and uh, that was easy. It had to be pragmatic. It had to be easy for people to use. Yeah. One of the things that we've talked about a lot so far on this podcast is whose responsibility is it to to help kids not find this stuff. And we've come back again and again that it's parents' responsibility to know what their kids are doing and all that. But then if you have the adult entertainment industry or cannabis or whatever other age-restricted thing that's out there, if you have them self-monitoring and doing that themselves, then that's a benefit to them as well. But it also helps the parents who are trying to uh, make it so their kids aren't able to access that stuff. Oh, very definitely. And plus one of the things to me is you really want it to be self-regulation because one of the problems about regulations, if a company doesn't do it correctly, they're going to have all these possible legal issues. Well, if it's self-regulation, then they're working within an organization, within like a framework that if there's an issue, the industry is going to take care of themselves. In fact, what we did when I was at ASACP, which was the Child Protection Group, is that we actually monitored our member sites to make sure they were doing everything correctly. And when I was there for nine years, and in nine years, we only had to terminate two customer, two people uh, that were trying to get around the system because they really wanted the other people, the other companies to know that they were doing this legitimately. So I think it's important that they felt it by being able to put our label and to have us monitor them and to do this. It was like a real badge. It was like a Better Business Bureau badge. So one of the things I remember from the research I did for that book, Jim, was that you began to see really peer pressure coming into play from one business to another. Based on your experience, what do you think the uptake was percentage-wise for the adult industry? How many sites out there are are part of this? This is going back because I left that company in 2011. We had, I forget the numbers, but it, it was like 16 million sites had been on there. I mean, we really did a good job and got all the large companies to be sponsoring this and promoting it. So everybody wanted to do it. And also, as you said, it was like, it was almost peer pressure. So you wanted, if somebody didn't have our label on their site, a company would kind of question, why aren't they on, you know, using this? So it really does become peer pressure. Right. And you were aided too by the um, unique aspects of the industry, at least at that time, where it was very much affiliate driven. So these things would flow downhill from the big companies to the smaller. Yes, yes, absolutely. Plus, we were able from a technological perspective, and I don't want to get drilled down too much, but what we were able to do is that when we had what we called a member, somebody who had gone through our review, we checked out our site we were able to what we call spider up. So if you had a website, we were able to go from your website and go up to your affiliate and your affiliates affiliates. And we were able to do some spidering to see what they were doing. I mean, you can go up as far as you wanted. We found going up two levels was really enough, but it protected you because the government, if your affiliate wasn't doing something correctly, and it filtered down to you, then you could be held legally responsible for it. And you would be part of maybe a RICO. If you made money off of it, then you were going to get a RICO charge. It was a lot more complicated in certain ways than you would, people would think. 
I completely understand that. And, you know, the the federal government, and and I will say with particular focus, the FBI has a lot of resources at its disposal if it starts investigating this kind of thing. One of the things, to shift gears a little bit, one of the things that I was looking at when I did Cyber Traps for the Young back actually about the same time, 2011, when you wrapped up at ASACP, is that kids to a surprising degree, are able to order contraband or adult substances online. And it's remarkable how easy it is apparently for kids to use their parents' credit cards or some other funding source, or sometimes, God help us all, parents give their kids not only internet access, but (laughs) credit cards. And, And these deliveries show up. And so here's this new industry coming along. Do you feel like you're going to be far enough ahead of its development to make a real difference? Well, I think the industry, because of delivery, because one thing's with the adult entertainment industry, you could be getting your product online. I mean, I can order a don't movie and I could see it immediately. With the cannabis industry, you're talking about it's a physical product that they have to be receiving. So what has happened is that I'm talk about getting into the website to take a look at what was going on. But when it comes to ordering and delivery, there, is, there are good systems out there. They are using age verification. They are looking, they require IDs. I mean, there's different age verification systems, but they're requiring IDs that they can actually go through a national, international database and determine you know, that yes, this person is a real person, they're in our database. So that's like step one. And also if you go into a store, you don't get to go into a store or dispensary. I mean, they, have, they check your ID. I mean, they're right, you're right there. Now delivery, they were having a little bit of an issue at the beginning of delivery. But I would say in the last year, year and a half, they've been able to correct some of the issues. So when they do deliver, you just, the, the pr- pa- package is just not dumped at your doorstep. Let me put it at that. First of all, somebody would steal it because of those porch thieves, but they actually, you have to show up, you have to show your ID that has to match the ID that when you ordered it, somebody checks to make sure it's you. So it really is a very, I would say overall, very secure system as far as protecting kids and uh, making sure that it's only adults that are ordering or receiving the order. So I think the question then becomes, given the global nature of everything we're dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. One of the problems that arose when I was doing my research was that kids were ordering things from out of the country and they were using websites with lower standards What's your sense in terms of the international level of cooperation and enforcement for the same kinds of things you're talking about? Let me step back a little bit on that. There are these age verification systems across the country. In fact, somebody I had worked with a few years ago has a company called Age Checked out of the UK. I think you've met Alistair. And so he was in you know, the UK, but his was international as much as possible. As far as product being mailed, now that's a, that's a really hard one because the good companies are not going to be, they're not going to be ma- uh, mailing any product that has THC in it. If it has CBD, it can be mailed. So you just don't know you know, what, what's coming out of the country if it's going through the postal system. Right. And actually, Joan, if you don't mind, it might be helpful to explain the distinction between THC and CBD. Oh. Because not everybody may be aware. Oh, okay. Well, basically, CBD comes from a plant or the end result is that it's less than 0.03% of THC. And THC is what they call, the, I think it, what gets you high? I know there's a better term, but you know, it's easiest to say what gets you high. So, <laughs> and so the right. THC and the high THC level and all the different turpins and I'm not that familiar with the overall plant and be able to drill down on that, but that's what they're more concerned about. 
the one the one thing I'll toss, I actually have a little bit of experience in the CBD area because I have marathon damaged joints. Ooh. And there's actually a lot of product, a lot of solves and rubs out there that incorporate CBD. Mm-hmm. And there's debate about how effective they are, but they can relieve pain a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's interesting to see that you start to expand outward. Yeah. And that, that's a, I, I could get into that. That's a whole nother issue because the CBD doesn't have the same, have to have the same testing as product mm-hmm. that has a THC. And they were finding this sidebar. They were finding like some of the products that you were getting, even in the grocery stores or the pharmacies didn't have the same the CBD level that was being stated that they had. But back to the THC, at least from the legitimate companies, you know, if you're in a state that it's legal and you have to, you have to test it, you have to know what batch it's from, you have to know the level, they tested for pesticides. I mean, they tested for absolutely everything. So it's not back in the days where you're just getting a lid from somebody and you didn't know what was really in it. (laughs) You know, nowadays, you know, in general, what you're getting, how you react to it may be different, but you know what you're getting. But let me go side note to get back to the kids. The, in California, one of the things that we found is that there was that whole issue with vaping and the kids were getting sick from vaping. Well, and I attended, my assembly member had a town hall that talked about kids and vaping and it was lots and lots of parents there. One of the issues is that the children were not getting it from the legal marketplace. So they were still getting it from maybe a friend, if they were younger, a friend's brother who may have gotten it from, I hate to say a dealer from a little, it's not a dealer, from somebody that was not legal. So you didn't know what you were getting. It was getting to the kids and it wasn't through the legal chain of dispensaries. So that was a real issue. But what I found was, what I found was really funny. I went to this meeting and it's all parents. I come in and, you know, I'm like the grandparent looking thing. And these parents are going crazy and the kids are like, oh, yes, we can do this. We can do that. And I was going, do you realize, first of all, the issues with the product that was in the vape, a lot of that was coming from China or other illicit sources. So it wasn't being tested. So what the kids were really, when, why they were getting sick and all that was mainly because it was really untested, illicit cannabis vaping products. So that was, and it really hurt the cannabis industry because it wasn't, they were getting associated with that while they really weren't. I hate to say, I kind of laugh at, is parents were just beside themselves and I've always said, you're giving your kids the phone, the this or that. So you kind of should be able to know what they're doing. Plus, as you mentioned, Fred, the kids have credit cards and you're giving your kids credit cards. And how much money, how much allowance are you giving your kids? Are you monitoring what your kids are spending time on, what they're spending their money on? Because they did... and. Parents, I think, have realized through this pandemic and having to homeschool and all that, they, I think they realized more than they ever wanted about what it was like to educate these kids. And, and you have these kids right there in front of you while normally they don't. But as parents, you really need to be talking to them. And you need, it's your responsibility as a parent, as much as you want to trust your kids, you need to know what they are doing. And to be able, if they're coming home and they're a little bit loopy, you don't ignore it. You actually talk about it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that Tessa Stuckey said in our first interview on this podcast was you need to look for signs that your kids are acting differently 
and then try to figure out what it is that's causing them to act in that way, because it does make a difference. And if they're using something, then you should know as the parent and you should be able to talk to them about it. And certainly as you're advocating, you should know way before that they're, mm-hmm. that they're looking at that stuff and trying to get more inform- information about it. And I remember as a teenager, I had a poster in my room that had all the different drugs, legal and illegal, attached little like exemplars of them, not the real thing, but little exemplars of what they looked like and where they affected the brain and what they did to the brain. And it was this really informative poster. And my parents let me have it up because they thought if Jethro will like be able to talk openly about this and what drugs he's interested in, we can leave at least have a pulse on what things Jethro might do. And thankfully they were able to be open enough with me that I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to like sneak around all the time and and learn about these things in a dark corner. And I could, you know, have this poster up on my wall. I'm not advocating that for everybody, of course, but just that was very informative and intriguing to me. And it was a, a worthwhile thing, but I, I knew that I could talk to my parents about that if I wanted. I didn't want to, but you know, I, <laughs> that's a little caveat. Their parents? <laughs> I, I think that's right. one of the great things about this podcast are the things we learn about our co-hosts during the course. Oh, man. <laughs> and if my family's listening to this, they'll remember that poster. Yeah, <laughs> this is all super educational for me, so... You are Mr. Oh, Goody Two Shoes. Oh God, Joan, you can't even believe. <laughs> I know, given given oh, the course of my writing career, that is a little bit hard to imagine. But in fact, yes, yeah. it sure is. <laughs> Listen, I was a product of the '60s, so I can bring in a lot of personal experience. I think it's really important to, especially now, as I said, the world has changed, and the pandemic has even changed things even more for us. And sadly, we're going to be living with the you know, residual effects of this for at least this year. They're talking really, it's probably going to be bit mid-2022 you know, before things really get back to normal. And I think one of the reasons it's so interesting to talk to you, Joan, is that we saw this sudden swerve into online activity, not a swerve into it, but an expansion of it, I guess I would say. And it puts a premium, I think, on the kind of industry parent partnerships that you've worked on really for the last 20 plus years. Because I think as Jethro and I have talked about repeatedly, you can't put the burden entirely on one or the other, right? Mm -hmm. Parents need help, parents need cooperation from these groups. These groups do have a social and moral responsibility to the society as a whole. Mm -hmm. At the same time, these groups, whether it's the adult industry or the cannabis industry or the liquor industry or whatever, Mm -hmm. they need parents to be involved, to be aware of what their kids are doing and to take some responsibility if they're handing out credit cards to kids that allow them to pretend to be adults. Mm -hmm. Oh, can I say, I really agree with that. And I've talked to friends of mine who are parents and had teenagers because I wanted to really get, I don't have kids, so I have to get, you know, feedback from these people. And they said, with alcohol, they go, we do not lock up our liquor cabinet. We talk to our kids. They know they shouldn't. They do. And so, because all of a sudden it was like, oh, if parents have cannabis, then it needs to be locked up because the kids are going to find it. And this and that, they were making it like it was worse than alcohol. It's pretty much the same as alcohol. So you really need to have somewhat the same discussion as parents and schools are used to having with children about alcohol. It just happens to be something else. And also another thing, just that back when we were developing policies for high risk domains, for top-level domains for ICANN, the center of the World Wide Web, we had an amazing group of experts that were part of this policy council. I used to walk in there and want to go, I am not worthy, I am not worthy. We had Nadine Straussen, who was president of the ACLU for 18 years and taught at New York Law School. We had Fred Cates, who another attorney that ran the cybersecurity center at the University of Indiana. I know that there was just as general. And one of the things we looked at as we were trying to come up with policies is 
how do we make the internet and the World Wide Web safe for children? That was as you were looking at everything else and they said, okay, fine, we'll just shut it down. That's the only way you're going to make it safe for children. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> this touches a, a big part of my intellectual life, which is you know, the, the gradations between obscenity and indecency and free speech and all the rest of mm -hmm. that. And I'm sure you're aware of the harmful to minors standard that is out in a lot of states. And the, in the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, uh, child, no, it's the Child Online Protection Act, COPA, which was the follow-up to the Communications Decency Act. Yeah. They tried to implement the harmful to minors standard for the entire web so that any website that was showing content that, was, that could be deemed by a jury to be harmful to minors risked federal fines. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court threw that out. It's just, it's so contrary to the First Amendment. We have these discussions all the time, and it is very difficult for parents. I get that. The First Amendment, you could almost say, is not parent-friendly. Can I say, very definitely, and especially in what's been going on in the last few weeks about free speech and all of that. And I step back, or sometimes on Facebook and others, I will make comments and people are going, well, what do you know? And I went, well, I happen to be on the Free Speech Coalition board. I happen to. And then they go, well, how about section, was it 230? And I said, guess what? 230 was at one point, I knew that. And, and what it was is, do you allow, you have to balance the privacy for kids and free speech. It really is a balancing act. They wanted to, the government wanted that you would have to opt in. In other words, say, okay, I want to take a look at this site rather than it just being available. That would have shut down a lot of businesses because if people didn't know that they should opt in or if they went to Google and they did a search, did a search and something, a site didn't show up, it really just cut out all marketing unless you could spend a lot of money on it. So there was that balancing act also, the difference, you were just over in the UK, the difference between the EU and their privacy and the United States privacy is they're in almost 180 degrees away from one another, which is causing issues. In fact, you're exactly right. They are 180 degrees away from each other because we use this opt-out system and the EU favors the opt-in system. And interestingly, this happened after I think you left ASACP. But England toyed with, and I don't know if they fully implemented it, but they toyed with a system whereby in order to access adult content, you had to register your phone number with some central governmental bureau, which sounds is a privacy nightmare. Putting aside whatever other considerations there may be, the idea of the government literally registering people who want to access adult content is... I hate to overuse this term or use this term, which is wildly overused these days, but it's Orwellian. <laughs> oh, I was involved when I was at ASACP. That was when our government was trying to maybe implement what other governments were doing, where you would have to come and register someplace, physically go and register in order to get this code to get on. And so you're going to be going to and that back then it was around adult entertainment. So you're going to go to a government office and you're going to be saying, I need to register for 18 plus. And back then all that meant was I'm looking at adult entertainment. I mean, talk about privacy. Um, that must have been under Ashcroft, right? Yeah, it was definitely under Ashcroft. And they were going to create a whole nother department under Treasury to manage this. So you're going... Okay, you're doing this, then you're going to create a whole nother department as if we need more bureaucracy. And so it was very interesting. And that got shut down a lot of it because of it, it's so interesting how, as someone who wants free speech to be there, but also someone who wants to protect my kids from 
seeing horrible things. It is really a balancing act because there are things that they're not prepared to see. And I, and some things I don't ever want them to see. And so some like on social media, for example, they put up splash pages that basically say this content is sensitive and intended for mature audiences or whatever. And that's a way to signal, oh, one, I better not look at this when I'm at work. And two, if I don't want to see this, then I better (laughs) get out of there. And so is that a a step in the right direction? Is that enough to help prevent kids from getting there? Or does that advertise this is where you go if you want to see this kind of stuff? I think from a legal perspective, that if that comes up, then the industry has done what they needed to do. That's part of it is, is legality and liability. You know, and we can't control, as an industry, we can't control what's happening in people's homes. That's asking way too much. In fact, one of the issues with the privacy and the free speech and now the DCMA that is, that's been coming out, the information just now, is that like with Facebook, or with Google, with any of those, if they had to check absolutely everything, the liability issue would be astronomical. The amount of computer resources it would take in order to accomplish it would be, it would, they'd have to charge so much for the use of the internet that a lot of people wouldn't be, and they'd have to charge for it. And much more, most people wouldn't be able to afford it. John, it's interesting because as my wife, Amy, is an art historian, Mm -hmm. and she deals a lot with the topic of art speech online. And artists tend to be a little bit edgy, and they tend to put things on Mm -hmm. social media, particularly actually Instagram, which is a real haven for artists and promoting their work and and advertising and just displaying what they do. And I think that if Section 230, which was part of the Communications Decency Act back in 1996, Mm -hmm. so really the core of social media arose when that was passed. If Section 230 were to be eliminated, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of marginalized communities would suffer dramatically because the companies would not be willing to take the risk of having edgy art or controversial opinions or what have you. I do agree, and and we'll probably get into this, Jethro, at some point in a more focused way. I do agree that Section 230 was well-meaning when it was adopted, but it may be time to revisit whether or not it needs to be this blanket permission to not be responsible for what goes online. And I think a lot of parents are going to start looking at that, just like Jethro is, because it's really hard to be a parent these days. Oh, and you're talking about 230. It, it was really put in because of the adult entertainment industry. That was the main age-restricted... Pro- oh, go on. I'm going, to, I'm going to background story explain you. <laughs> I, 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 I refuse... <laughs> I refuse to call this mansplaining, but I will research explain you. <laughs> so what ended up happening was that actually arose out of a stock case. And somebody on AOL put information on AOL that trashed a stock. And AOL got sued over the okay. fact that information had been put online. And they freaked out. And they basically went to Congress and said, we can't operate our service if we're responsible for every rumor that is put onto our servers. And the response to that, and yes, the adult industry was lurking in the background, but you remember full, nobody wanted to talk about it back then, except trying to shut it down. And that didn't work for reasons we don't need to get into. But the point being that Act 230 was a corporate shield more than it was anything else. And then it had, as so many of these things do, the unintended consequence of allowing the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Jack Dorseys and so forth to shield themselves and let the fire hose open. Yeah, in fact, it's very interesting because one of the issues, and it's just come up right now with blocking people, taking them down and all that, is that the government said, okay, we want you to monitor. And they're going, hey, we can't possibly monitor. We're not a public utility. We don't have the responsibility of allowing everybody in our system. But then 
when you can see that they can monitor and take some down some of this hate speech that's going on and take down a lot of what's going on, it puts them into this very weird you know, liability issue of, okay, if you can do that, why can't you do this? And from the lawyer, I'd like you to address that. I will be happy to. And I'm going to give a shout out to, I, do we call them competitors, Jethro, if they don't even know we exist? Okay. So the Worthy Rival podcast, The New Abnormal with Rick Wilson and Molly Jongfest, which is just my absolute jam in terms of dinner time cooking podcast, is um, they last night had a guy on who was talking about Section 230. And he himself is a podcaster. It's all very incestuous. And so basically what he was saying is that if he puts something up on his podcast website that uses copyrighted music, his service will take him down in minutes because of DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, Mm -hmm. which requires these takedown notices. Mm -hmm. And so what his point was, and I think it's exactly right, is that this is not a possibility issue. This is a problem profitability issue. Yes. And so what has to happen is that financially, these social media sites need to be incentivized to treat this the same way they treat copyright violations, and then they will figure it out. Yeah, they do. And but then it comes back to, as you said, it comes back to it has to be profitability. And then what can the companies realistically do. Just yesterday, I read it today, that TikTok has just implemented a um, child access. So if you're under 13, you can't access. But I don't, I didn't drill down into the details of what they were using. And I think it was once again, self-professed that you're this age. And they said, it's still gonna have the same issues because kids are gonna be lying. As I said, and I didn't drill down to what, how they were going. I mean, kids lie. So I said, hey, I always had, excuse me, I had IDs that I could get into bars when I was under 18 in New York back when I was 18. So TikTok is doing something. You think they're doing that just because they're good people? No, they're doing it because it is a liability. I think that point is, I'm so glad you said that because they're never going to operate in our best interests because they have their own interests. And too often we think that they're creating these services or these these opportunities for us, whether we're talking about the adult entertainment or the cannabis or social media platforms, they have a reason why they're doing it. And they're doing it to go back to what we're really talking about, the cannabis industry. They're doing it to make money by selling cannabis to people. So if that's the case, they want to sell as much as they can and if they could sell to kids and not get caught and not get in trouble because it's unregulated, that and because it's not regulated, then that's all well and good. However, because it is regulated, they know that is a liability, like you said. And so it makes sense for them to want to take steps to make it happen and to, to put restrictions in place so that kids can't get on there and buy it. So taking all that into consideration, what would be your advice to parents uh, or to school teachers and leaders about having these conversations and what to talk about with their kids to help them not buy these things before they're of legal age to do that. I've talked to people who are working with the school systems and what it really is, the school has to put out, I hate to say the school is involved in this, like it or not. And so the the school has zero tolerance. If they see something, they're reporting back to the parents. There was one woman, you know, that I was talking to, Joan Stein, that is a lawyer and a mediator. And so she was working with the school systems where if a kid was having issues, they brought, instead of just expelling the kid, they would uh, bring in her and the school and the parents, and they would actually be having discussions. And just instead of just saying, no, 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 they were saying, why are you doing this? What can we be doing you know, to help this, what do you have to do? And what do your parents have to do so that you had that mediation and that everybody could in general agree, not that the kids probably wanted it, but in general agree. And that's, and the parents just have to be aware. And we're lucky in this area that the school system, some, some community groups and all that have meetings for parents about what you can be doing with your kids, but where it's a fairly affluent area, you know, they can afford to do that. 
And so that's one of the things that are happening. And also, I think just in general, and Jethro, you'll appreciate this with homeschooling. It's it's going to be change. It's changing the dynamics of what's happening. I have a nephew that teaches and he's having to do homeschooling. And all of a sudden he was noticing that if he was asking questions, you know, the kids would be like this. And he knew that they were looking up the answer. And he was really, really upset because he's such a purist. And I I said to him, I said, when I was, I went and took some classes and after I went, just went to a community college after I had my degree and took some classes. And one of the things, and this is going back 30 something years ago, that they said, there's so much information out there that it's impossible to know it all. So if we can teach you how to access the information you have, and this is before the internet, then that's really it. So what you're looking at with schools, and I'm, I know I've segued to something else, but with schools, so maybe the way that we've been teaching kids really has to change based on what's been going on during this time. Yeah, well, talk about getting me on a rant and a, a tear about <laughs> education and how that's all been working over the years and how it's working now. Yes, let me tell you, I have some strong feelings about that. And for that, I direct you to my Transformative Principle podcast, but I won't get into all that here. But yes, we could we could spend hours. And the soapbox that I would put right beside Jethro's is the need for critical thinking. Because in a world, in a world in which there is so much information, the critical skill, the fundamental skill is the ability to look at information critically understand how it integrates with other information and reach a rational conclusion. I, I, I am increasingly concerned that we've been trying to repeal the enlightenment over the last half decade or so. And I think we really need to recommit public education to this fundamental issue. Let me throw out one other thing because it was inspired by Jethro's last comment, which is that it, it is really important for parents to be realistic about what these software companies out there are trying to do because they are corporations. They have a bottom line, they have shareholders. Their goal is to maximize revenue. And I don't wanna let you go without talking about the implications for advertising to kids, which is good. But before we get there, I think it's important to remind people that Ever since Larry Page and Sergey Brin put Google together, their motto was, don't be evil. And then two years ago, they took that out of their corporate mission statement. So just understand, I don't think that they're fundamentally evil, but that's no longer an overarching goal. <laughs> so we need to be very clear-headed and realistic about how corporations view us as consumers which brings us to advertising. <laughs> oh, okay, advertising. I can jump off that one very quickly. And especially you mentioned Google. Years ago, okay, one of the things that the organization I ran, in addition to doing policies and this restricted to adult, we had a child pornography reporting hotline, which was just like the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. In fact, we worked with them. And what we were discovering is that Google was allowing word searches that would indicate possible to us possible child pornography. And they were allowing those results from those searches, which they should have never done. And we worked with them so that if somebody put a child porn term into a search that was only supposed to bring up our link and the National Center for Missing Exploited Children and some of the other hotlines around the world so that it was going to really keep them boxed in. And also recognize if somebody's doing that search, that there's advertising around where all the results are. So we went in there, we had a meeting with them once, we did some research, just using a couple of child porn terms. And we came up with a printout about yay big of what results came back off of that. And it was very funny because there was like, I think 15 Google people and myself and only a few other people. And for some reason, once we presented with that, that just left the room very quickly. 
And I think within two days it was handled. But what it was also is if you're putting advertising around that, then all of those, those advertisers could get implicated with using with child porn. So it does, did become an advertising issue. That's really, that, um, that's really interesting. So when you're looking at the development of the cannabis industry, one of the things they're undoubtedly looking at is where are their ads going? Yes. Um, and with that, what you have is you have a number of people. In fact, we have a common friend, Scott Rabinowitz, who has been involved in SEO, search engine optimization, digital marketing, digital advertising. And so he's been working with this a lot. So you now, and they know, if, they, if you're working with a professional, which you really need to be doing if you're doing digital marketing, they know what advertisers will work with you. They know what advertisers won't work with you. They know all the rules and the regulations of what it is. And here in California, I don't think you, you can't have an actual print ad or an ad, even a, a digital ad on a publication that doesn't, it has, I think it has to be 72 or 78% of their known readership is are over 21. Part that is to do with digital media. I can't even imagine, honestly. <laughs> well, Joan, I got to tell you, this has been absolutely fascinating. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, high-tech parenting, etc. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of interesting experts, who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. And you can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast players. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions or guest suggestions as well. We're open to those. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. So please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice. We appreciate having you here with us and look forward to having you join us in the next episode of Cybertraps. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE.